Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Kick on the air. It is Tuesday night, December 29th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Still coming to you in very unfamiliar but not totally impossible circumstances. I am at what is now being referred to as my Georgia childhood bedroom secret backup bunker studio. Uh, that is an unofficial title, pending a better title. Also, the naming rights are available, as I said in the podcast this morning. If anyone out there, Ford, Lexus, you guys want to slap your name on the Georgia Secret Underground Childhood Bedroom Bunker Studio, which has already had a name change in the first 20 seconds of the show, be my guest. Happy to have you with us, though. I am still not in Nashville because we still don't really have internet, which once upon a time I lived without entirely, and now I cannot function without in terms of a work environment. So I'm at the backup studio. Colin is throwing this show together sort of on the fly. Thank you so much for being with us. And really, here's our, here's our goal. If you close your eyes and you just listen, we hope it sounds no different. Occasionally, you'll hear me breathe or you may, you may hear that sound a little bit more. It's just a little bit different microphone I'm using. But other than that, we should be good. We got a lot to talk about tonight. We got some more bowl previews. I'm not just doing playoff games. Some of you thought that the other night. No, I'm not doing that. Uh, but before we do our game previews, I want to talk about a few things. A lot of you have been asking about Dabo Swinney and about Clemson. Now, there is not a Z in Clemson, but there is one when I pronounce it, and we're just going to have to deal with that. It's an impediment I have. We're just going to have to deal with it, just like you have to deal with Dabo Swinney talking. Now, I don't really have a problem with it, but only because I know where he's coming from, exactly where he's coming from. We're going to discuss that in just a second and how it does or does not pertain to the Ohio State game. I am going to tell you in much further detail how I think Florida and Notre Dame are on a very similar path right now, or they're at very similar spots on their path, shall we say, in 2020 and beyond. Alabama's got an opportunity to do something incredible over the next two weeks. January 11th, I think, is the title game. So next two, two and a half weeks, they got a chance to do something totally incredible. They've already done a lot of incredible things this year. Uh, they set records in the SEC, which hopefully will never be broken because hopefully we'll never have to have a season like this again. But should they be an overwhelming favorite in the playoff? And should people be walking around calling them unbeatable? I have thought no all year that they shouldn't be called unbeatable because they're not unbeatable. Unbeatable teams don't win by a touchdown in a conference title game. Really, really good teams do. But unbeatable teams don't. Unbeatable teams win by 50 or whatever. So that's always been ridiculous. Having said that, Alabama's an incredible team. They're the best team in the country that I've seen this year. It's probably the best team Nick Saban's had. That you can debate, but I believe it is. So I'll show you the angle I'm going at with that in just a second. Actually, it's probably like 20 minutes away, but still. And also, I have to thank you again, because just as I thanked you the other night, when I told you that we had gone over 1,200 five-star reviews on the Late Kick podcast, we've now gone over 1,300 five-star reviews in the Apple podcast section of the Late Kick podcast. So if I just say it every time and it brings another 100 or so five-star reviews, why not? Hey, let's go to 1,400, shall we? Again, thank you in advance. Sincerely, XOXO, yours truly. 
So let's dive into this. It's going to be a little bit looser show because believe me, I have zero notes in front of me. So we're going to do it just like we do the Late Kick Extra podcast, except it's not Q&A. But we're going to be loose here. It's going to be free-flowing, and away we go. A lot of you have noticed Dabo Swinney at Clemson. He's been talking a little bit, talking about everything from how his opponent shouldn't be in the playoff, through no fault of theirs, of course. It's not an Ohio State thing. It's just a playoff thing. It's just a principal thing, to the fact that he could be governor of Michigan. Um, You could argue whether either of those are valid or not, but I will say this. I'm not sure why you guys don't understand what he's doing. Why is this a surprise to anyone? Maybe if you just arrived in the college football world 10 minutes ago, and you don't know anything about anyone, and so you're just developing a first-time perception of people, okay, maybe you're looking at Dabo Swinney and you're saying, oh, you're saying, that's that's that Jersey accent, even though I've never visited there coming out. Maybe you're looking at him and you're saying, oh, he must be a guy who talks a lot. Well, If recency bias is all that you're basing that on, yeah, he does talk a lot. But think back further. Do do you remember when they first came to this dance? Do you remember when Clemson was brand new at the college football playoff table? They played Bama in Arizona. Then they played them the next year in Tampa. But do you remember when they used to be an underdog in these settings? That's what I'm trying to get you to remember. It wasn't always the case that Clemson showed up and they were the favorite. They were the prohibitive favorite. They're favored by a touchdown. In some places, a little bit more than a touchdown against Ohio State this Friday night. That was a different DNA. When I say DNA, I don't actually mean the way the program was wired. I mean the way it carried itself outwardly and the way that its leader, Debo Swinney, carried himself outwardly. There has been a diametric opposition that I've had to one thing Clemson does over the years. I've spoken about this a lot. I don't think I've spoken about it this year. So a lot of you are new to the show, so you may not have heard me talk about this. I always have to preface it the right way because it sounds like I'm trashing Clemson and I'm not at all. There is an approach that Dabo Swinney takes that I don't personally buy into. So the approach is this. The approach is allowing the key source of fuel for your motivation to be doubt and allowing the key source of fuel for your motivation to be an underdog mentality. I don't believe in that. Not because it doesn't help you win. It does help you win. Obviously, it helps you win. Check out where they are right now. Check out where they've been. It's not that it can't help you win. It's not that it doesn't get you fired up. It does get you fired up. Absolutely. Clemson plays with a massive chip on their shoulder, or at least they have in the past, in moments where they were an underdog. When in the world have you ever seen them in a big game where they were an underdog underachieve? They may not have always won, but they've always overachieved, at least as far as I can tell, relative to expectation. Why is that? Well, because they felt doubted, because they felt like an underdog. So, of course, that worked. Using that as your fuel, using that as the source of your motivation, it works. It's all well and good in your climb. And Clemson was climbing in 2015, 2016, 17, like even in 2018 when they boat raced Alabama, they were an underdog. And there you go. They overachieved massively relative to expectation. So how could you have a problem with this? Well, here's my problem. My problem's not with what it does for you on the climb. My problem is what that philosophy does for you when you're at the mountaintop. Because here's the thing about that overachievement. Here's the thing about that chip on the shoulder mentality, us against the world, back against the wall. Well, if you're good and you keep getting better and you keep getting more talented and you keep overachieving, overachieving, win, 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 all of a sudden you do something really crazy in that climb. You get to the top. You get to the mountaintop. Clemson has been there a couple of times, but even when they won their first title, 
in 2016, was it? Yeah, in Tampa. I mean, they were still an underdog. The next year they faced Bama, and the year after that they faced Bama. So as a program, they weren't viewed as having quite gotten to the level of Alabama, even though they beat them one time on the field. But now, as a program, many people view them as equal to Alabama. In fact, after the 2018 game, a lot of people viewed them as having surpassed Alabama. Had Clemson played Alabama in a playoff situation last year, Clemson would have been the favorite. Now, Tua had been knocked out, but Clemson would have been the favorite. Okay, so the perception changed. Well, also, a byproduct of that is Clemson's favored by most everyone they play now. Now, against some of the teams they play in conference, really the motivation level doesn't matter because their talent alone is winning those games. But now you see what happens when you get in a big game, against Ohio State, for example, and now all of a sudden, you're not the underdog anymore. Uh, no one doubts you anymore. That entire fuel source, that motivation source that you you used to get to the top, got you there. It got you to the top. Here is the difference in philosophy I have versus the way that Dabo Swinney runs his program. I'm going to save you some time right now. If you're headed to the comment section, if you're a detractor, you're already right in the point you're about to make, and that is Dabo's won multiple championships. I don't even have a team of my own. Therefore, why would you listen to me and my style and my approach to leading an organization over a guy who's proven? If you were going to say that, let me save you some time. It's valid. What you're going to say is valid. That is a criticism that you could have for what I'm about to tell you. But yet I still feel this way. I don't believe in the philosophy of allowing doubt to be the fuel source for your motivation. I don't believe in having your back against the wall, you against the world, all that stuff being your fuel source. Only because eventually if you get to the mountaintop, it's not there anymore. The blueprint you used to get there is no longer applicable and you find yourself being on top of the world having to reinvent your approach. If you want to know what's behind a little bit of what you're seeing right now, that's it. If you want to all of a sudden know why Dabo Swinney seems to be talking out of every orifice he has right now, it's not because he's dumb. It's not because he's bored. It's not because all of a sudden he doesn't have a filter. That's not it. Dabo Swinney could talk and think circles around most of the folks criticizing him. That's not it. What's happening is this right here, where Clemson's about to be Friday night in New Orleans against Ohio State, this used to be a spot where they'd be a 10-point underdog or a 7-point underdog. They're not anymore. They're not. They're a seven-point favorite. So all that stuff you used to use for motivation, all that stuff in these big-time settings that you used to be able to tell your kids, hey, look at this headline, look at that headline, look at this point spread, listen to this expert. Well, the point spreads all favor you, and the headline favors you, and the expert's picking you. So that fuel source, that source of motivation you used to have, the plug got pulled out of the wall. The gas tank got emptied and it got filled with orange juice. If you're trying to tell your guys they're still being doubted and it's them against the world, it rings hollow because they're not stupid. They've got an iPhone in their locker. Every time they turn it on, they're told how good they are. They're not told how little a chance they have. Now, if you want to use this, if you're Brian Kelly in Notre Dame, I guess it'd work, but it doesn't work if you're Clemson. That therein lies really the opposition that I have to some of the approach that he's taken. The results so far have paid off. But then again, if I have opposition, it certainly wouldn't be because of what I expect to happen on the front end. On the front end, Clemson's done everything I would think they'd do. It's once you get to the mountaintop, how do you stay there? That's the beauty. And there are different approaches being taken here. Clemson versus Tuscaloosa. But that's the beauty in what Nick Saban's done. 
you don't really hear that from them. You don't ever, they don't talk very much, period. But when they talk, it's not that. They sound very robotic and you think it sounds boring. Like it's, it's a lot, it's a lot more fun to get some headlines. It's a lot more fun to hear some bulletin board locker room material. But that's kind of not the way that that program has been programmed. And that's because that's just not how Nick Saban operates. It's always even keel, never too far up, never too far down. We're going to operate based on a process over using external factors to fuel us because if we're reliant on external factors, i.e. doubters, i.e. hate, i.e. locker room material, bulletin board material, what happens when it runs out? Where's our fuel coming from? If we taught ourselves to rely on that, where's our fuel coming from? Well, right now, that is absent for Clemson. They don't have it. They may beat Ohio State Friday night. I'm picking them to win. But I'm telling you, in the lead up, the reason Dabo Swinney sounds so much different is because they don't have that right now. There is no doubt. And so I don't know what his approach is. He may be crazy, maybe crazy like a fox or tiger, as the case may be. But I'm telling you, whatever's going into him talking so much right now, you can bet your bottom dollar is directly tied to the fact that he knows he has to have a different pregame approach here as opposed to what he used to have in these big games. What he used to have is not there. Then before we move on here, you know, if you want any further evidence, remember what it used to be. What it used to be leading into these big games was total radio silence from Clemson. Clemson was being ignored, and they really didn't draw attention to themselves because there was no sound coming out of Clemson. Now, internally, inside the four walls, figuratively, of their program and their football team, well, that's where the talking was happening. But it never got out. Almost to the point where Clemson was kind of anonymous. You knew the tiger paw, but you didn't know a whole lot of the players outside of maybe Deshaun Watson and company. Well, now it's the inverse. Now there's sound bites coming out of Clemson every day. They are totally different going into a big game now than what they were like going into a big game back then. And all that is, it's nothing more, nothing less. All that is, is Dabo Swinney knowing he's reached a different level in the journey of his program, and therefore he's got to redefine some of what they use in a buildup to get their team ready to do what they're famous for, which is peaking at the right time. And I don't think it's hating because I'm still picking them to win Friday night. Close, but I'm picking them to win. It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. <laughs> Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles. Now streaming only on Paramount+. Plus. Yes! All right, let's move on here. Colin, let's go to Florida and Notre Dame. So the other night on Late Kick, uh, episode 98, I think it was, I was talking about Florida. I was talking about Notre Dame. We were looking ahead to games coming up. Obviously, Florida's got Oklahoma Wednesday night, and Notre Dame's got a big playoff game against Alabama. And they're different. One's in a playoff game, one's not. But I think that there are a lot of similarities, and I wanted to dive into it a little bit further now, about where Florida is and where Notre Dame is. We were in an editorial meeting Yesterday morning, we were kind of talking about a content plan for the upcoming couple of weeks. We always like to try and stay ahead of the curve as best we can so that when breaking news happens, we don't have to reshuffle 50 cards in order to make it work. Everyone knows what they're doing. So we were talking about it, and I just kind of threw this out there, and I knew I was going to talk about it on the show tonight. And I really wanted to bounce it off some other people and got some feedback on it. But think about this. Think about where Florida is. Think about where Notre Dame is. 
they entered the season, I thought, in very similar positions. They entered the season with a big hurdle still in front of them, respectively. There were different hurdles, but a hurdle nonetheless in front of each one of them. The hurdle for Notre Dame was more collective. And it's just, you have not cleared the hurdle of beating elite teams. And there are very few opportunities you have to do that because there are very few elite teams out there. And the by, by nature of them not playing in a conference normally and not having made the playoff only one time, I think it's been, they just don't get a lot of opportunities. They got one against Alabama in 2012. They got humbled. They got one against Clemson a few years ago. They got humbled. Well, finally, they're in the ACC, as fate would have it this year, and they play Clemson the first time around, and they beat them. Classic game. You could argue it was the best game of the year. Classic game. Pause on Notre Dame. Now down to Gainesville, Florida we go. Florida comes into the beginning of the year. I remember doing several videos on this, and I was just repeating what Florida viewers and listeners had told me in my email inbox. Their thought was, we have the edge at quarterback over Georgia this year. We got better skill talent than them. We got a more experienced roster. We think we have a coaching edge. If we don't beat Georgia this year, we may never beat them under Dan Mullen. It was a do-or-die year for Georgia fan or for Florida fans when it comes to Georgia this year. In a lot of their minds, it was. That was the hurdle. Doesn't matter how many guys we put on the preseason All-American team. Doesn't matter that we're picked to do this or that. If we can't get over the Georgia hurdle, that means we're probably not getting to Atlanta to play for the SEC title. And then the date in Jacksonville comes and it comes to fruition. It validates a lot of what Florida fans wanted to see validates. They had a ton on Georgia at halftime and they go on to cruise against the dogs and then they win the East. They cleared that hurdle. All right. So there we go. If we were to just pause in time right there, both hurdles have been cleared. We're good to go, right? Not quite. Then some unforeseen things start to occur. Maybe more unforeseen for Florida than Notre Dame. Florida ends up going down the road a little ways, and here comes Alabama getting bigger on the horizon, and then all of a sudden there's a doom-doom, and it's like a tire blows out on the interstate. Only the tire that blew out here was a loss at home to LSU as a 24-some-odd point favorite. And that comes out of nowhere, and all of a sudden the momentum you thought you had is just totally off the rails because now you don't have a shot in all likelihood to go to the playoff. And yeah, you could still make it to Atlanta and you could still, well, you're going to make it to Atlanta. You could still obviously win an SEC title, but oh boy, it's going to be a, a tall task against Alabama. And then you get to Atlanta and you play Alabama and you, it's a hard fought battle, but you end up losing to them. As Georgia finishes the season red hot, by the way, and they got a chance against Cincinnati to really put an emphasis on that, and Florida's got a shot against Oklahoma to either win and salvage a season or maybe suffer another defeat and put yourself even further back into the mentality of, we took one step forward and then we took two or three steps back. All the momentum that you thought you had, that it felt like you had, will have evaporated. Do you really feel at the end of the year, if things continue as they have, do you really feel like at the end of the year, you really surpass Georgia and put distance between you and them like it felt like you were doing that afternoon in Jacksonville? Pause. Let's go back to South Bend, Indiana. After that win against Clemson, it was a big deal in South Bend. Huge deal. But all the while, you know, we got to take care of business the rest of the way. Got a really good win on the road against North Carolina. I'm a big believer in giving credit for that because it was a big win. They were only favored by three or four and they ended up winning comfortably, and they dominated the game physically. So then they go to the ACC title game, and we know what happened. And now, the one thing that you were crediting yourself for, the one hurdle you cleared, 
it just smashed you when it got its quarterback back in Trevor Lawrence. It smashed you. Clemson smashed you. And now you're still in the playoff. It's a really big deal. You're still in the playoff. But now you're going down to Dallas to play in the Rose Bowl, no less. Make that make sense. And you're you're playing Alabama, but you're a, nearly a three-touchdown underdog against Alabama. Remember what the hurdle was? The hurdle for Notre Dame was, we can't beat the elite teams. Well, if the first elite team you played smashed you once it was fully healthy, and then the second elite team you play smashes you in a playoff setting, no less, what does it feel like? What does it feel like? Remember, is it Florida, the Florida thought they cleared that hurdle, and then all of a sudden they have multiple setbacks. What if Notre Dame cleared their hurdle, and they have multiple setbacks, and right at the end of the year, when you thought you'd be ready to shine a bright, white, hot spotlight on 2021, and here we go, we're ready to dive in, what if you just kind of feel like you always felt? And if, think about if I were to tell you that at the beginning of the year, if I were to tell a Florida fan or a Notre Dame fan, Florida, you're going to beat Georgia this year, but you're still going to end the season kind of disappointed. Or Notre Dame, you're going to beat Clemson when they come to South Bend, but ultimately you're going to end the season kind of disappointed. Would that make sense? Of course it wouldn't. Because if you're Florida, I mean, by default, if I'm going to beat Georgia this year, then obviously I'm probably going to Atlanta, and that means they're not. There's no way I could end the season feeling like we're lesser than them, but yet strange situations can occur. Uh, you could have Kirby Smart start a different quarterback down the back stretch of the season after he's already played you. You could have yourself falter mightily and then get humbled in Atlanta. Well, beaten. I won't say humbled in Atlanta. And you could look around and say, well, we beat him this year, but is it is it something that's going to sustain itself or, or is it just kind of an isolated one-time deal? Likewise with Notre Dame. Yeah, we beat Clemson. But then they got the quarterback back and they smashed us. And then we got smashed in Dallas against Alabama. Like, so we really, did we did we do anything did we really put distance between the perception of us and the new reality of us? That's why these games are important. And that's why I want you to watch very closely tomorrow. Florida plays Oklahoma. They got a lot of guys out. I'm excited for the opportunity. Well, number one, I'm excited to watch the game, period. Number two, I'm excited about the opportunity. Because there have been times this year where you've looked at Florida and you've called them an immature team. They had moments this year of immaturity. Well, LSU came in there with a gutted roster, and they beat them. Okay? They came in there with a lot of key players out already in a bad year, and they beat Florida. Well, now Florida's going to go, and they're going to play Oklahoma, fully motivated Oklahoma team, really good Oklahoma team, now favored by three over the Gators with the guys who are opting out. And Florida's got a lot of their key players opting out. Okay, So you're going to see... You're going to see a reflection of the identity and the mentality of that program one way or another. You're either going to see them rise up and turn in a heck of a performance, or you're going to see them go in a total and complete shell. If it's the latter, then you got a bigger set of issues. But if it's the former, just like LSU had a little spark of hope for their future with a very good showing in an otherwise terrible year, if you end this season, I'm not one to put a lot of emphasis on bowl games, and I don't really care about the result here. If Florida fights, I mean fights their tail off and plays one of the best games they've played all year and puts in one of the best efforts they put in all year, I don't care if they win by three or lose by seven, it means a lot moving forward. Now, Notre Dame, if they beat Alabama, obviously, that turns the entire sport on its ear, and that turns the playoff on its ear, and that's that's its own segment. But if they lose to Alabama, what, what, are you losing 45-17, to 17, or are you losing 38-34? Because you, you turn in a 38-34 performance, you played Alabama closer than any team in the country this year. Uh, there's a lot positively to be taken from that moving forward. So 
really, really big games and really important games for matters that extend beyond just 2020 coming up later this week. All right, let's move on here. There was a moment in the preseason where I was talking about practice and I was talking about what we were hearing from practice. Now, obviously, it was a situation like none we have ever experienced. No one was allowed to be at practice. Even reporters who are normally given like five minutes, 10 minutes press availability before practice to observe, they weren't even allowed out there. So there was very little tangible, legitimate information coming out of practices. So uh, I was hearing from Alabama that they thought their offense was going to be better this year. Pause and think about what I just said. Now it sounds reasonable. Back then it sounded ludicrous. What I was telling you was not firsthand. I was telling you someone with firsthand knowledge of the Alabama program is suggesting that replacing Tua Tungavailoa with Mac Jones and taking Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs away from this offense and Jedrick Wills and taking away stud after stud from this offense, it's still going to be better than it was last year. Not as good. They think it's going to be better. And it happened. It actually happened. Like, I, I'm a believer in that. At the very least, it's on par. I think this offense is better than the one they had last year. And now they've lost Waddle. And it still looks better than the one they had last year. I don't know how in the world you do that. I can tell you one reason, and it's the guy who just won the Broyles Award, and that's Steve Sarkeesian. You just got to pay the man his money. That's what you got to do. And trust me, they have and they will. You just got to pay the man his money. So a uh, strong tip of the cap to that upstart program out of Tuscaloosa, uh, the University of, who is it, Colin? Alabama. Yeah, I think they're called Alabama. Um, they, they have an, an intangible mascot name, Crimson Tide. And then there's an elephant on the sideline. But I want you to think about this for a second. Let's rewind 10 years, 11 years, 12 years. So let's say Saban just got to Alabama. They're just beginning their run. It's, it's 2008, 2009, that time frame. If I were to tell you, even back then, if I were to tell you, hey, headline, Alabama has six first-team All-Americans, you'd say, well, that makes sense. I mean, it's a good program, up-and-coming program. They're right near the top every year now. They're recruiting well. I could see that. And then I said, no, 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 no. You don't get it. I'm from the future. I'm from 2020. And I'm telling you, even then, the Saban guy is still going to be there. So take the over, first piece of advice. Secondly, I am informing you, they're going to have six first-team All-Americans that year. Uh, here's the catch. Only one of them is going to be on defense. At the time, mind you, this is the John Parker Wilson, Greg McElroy era. The A.J. McCarron era is still to come at Alabama. And I'm telling you, sure as I'm standing here, a uh, future version of myself, that a decade from now, you're still going to be winning titles. You're still going to be right there at the front of the college football world every year, except that when you're racking up half a dozen first-team All-Americans a decade from now, all but one of them is going to be on offense. I don't know what I would think about that, to be honest with you. I don't know. Unless everything is going complete service academy and everyone's going to run the ball 90% of the time and just it may be Alabama running backs and fullbacks and offensive linemen winning the award. That's what I would think. But that's not the way it's happened, is it? So obviously it's been talked about at this point. Nick Saban has evolved his program. But now we're looking ahead to the playoff. And I thought that was a really good article that uh, Bud Elliott put on 247sports.com, I think it's still on the front page. At least it is at the time that I am recording this. And again, we're having to record a little bit early because, you know, a bomb went off in Nashville and we have no internet downtown where I live, so I'm still down in Georgia. But Bud was talking about the value of the number one seed. So Alabama's got the number one seed in the playoff. And I've heard some people throwing around the stat that the number one seed has only won the college football playoff national championship one time. 
and it really doesn't mean anything. It's it's much too small of a sample size, and the number one seed in the playoff does not always equate to the team that you would power rate number one. You know, like to go back to that 2012 game, it was pre-playoff, but even if there was a playoff committee that year, Notre Dame would have been the number one seed. Alabama would not have been the number one seed, yet Alabama was favored by 10 points on the field against Notre Dame and ended up beating them 42 to 14. So did the number one seed truly indicate who the number one team that year was? No, in power rating style. So that doesn't always mean everything, but it does this year because the true number one team is also number one in the playoff. Now it's very typical. Obviously, if you've made the playoff, you're a good team. Notre Dame's a good team. They are yet a 20 point underdog against Alabama. And if that seems high, I'm reading right off the screen right now. This is Bud's words, not mine. If that seems high, it's because it is. The record, by the way, for any round of the college football playoff as a betting favorite was 14 and a half points. And that was not that long ago. It was 2018. It was Alabama versus Oklahoma. That was at the Orange Bowl. I was there. I am, as of the time of this recording, actually wearing the Orange Bowl pullover that I got from the fine folks at the Orange Bowl. And I'm not bragging. It's actually a sad commentary on my life that outside of the white t-shirts you see me wear, pretty much the only time I ever get new clothes is when a bowl game gives me new clothes. So I rely on the bowl games more than you could possibly know. In fact, if you guys could do me one favor and some of the games out there coordinate with the other games and start handing out jeans or maybe the occasional pair of shoes, sandals, I don't care. Khakis, need a nice pair of khakis. You know, in case I need to ever go apply for a loan, for example, I'd like to have a nice pair of khakis. I can borrow the dress shoes from my uncle, so we're good there. But here's the interesting stat, getting back to the actual topic at hand. Here's the interesting stat. This is kind of what I was talking about, and Bud pointed it out numerically here. The typical gap between number one and number four has not been very big. And when I say gap, I mean point spread gap. So we're talking about the college football playoff. It's been around since 2014. If I were to ask you off the top of your head, guess the average point spread, number one favored over number four by how much on average? Would you be surprised to know that the answer is less than a touchdown? Number one has been favored over number four by an average of just 6.7 points. What's that a result of? Well, it's a result of the fact that, as I said, the number one ranked team is not always the number one power rated team. Sometimes you'll have a team like Alabama a couple of times, actually, that has stumbled in the regular season and then gets in the playoff and ends up you know, being the highest rated team in the playoff, according to Vegas, but the number four team, according to the college football playoff committee. So the rankings aren't always everything um, in terms of power rating. Now, here is where it gets truly interesting, and it's probably where you want to cut it off if you're a Notre Dame fan. It's possible to pull these upsets. It's not impossible. It's improbable, but it may not be impossible. But here's the problem. Here's why I was talking about the Alabama from a generation ago, 10 years ago versus the Alabama from now. It's extremely hard to upset this team now if you don't have potency at quarterback. You can do it if you've got potency at quarterback. Like Kyle Trask in Florida, they were a anywhere from a 14 to a 17 point underdog, depending on when you bet the game. But yet, they were there in the fourth quarter within one possession against Alabama last week. Like if they recovered an onside kick, they would have had a chance to go win the game. So that's how close they were. You can decide how close that is, but that's how close they were. Notre Dame, it's really unlikely to find themselves in that position because there is a certain level of firepower, a certain level of what I just call answerability you have to have offensively or else you are completely rudderless. You have no hope against this team. It's kind of like... If you know you're faster than someone and you're racing them on the playground, you, you can afford to turn around and run backwards and thumb your nose at them, knowing all the while that 
no matter how close they get to you, the second you turn around, you got 38% more speed than they do at your top end. And unless you trip or unless you pull something, you're going to pull away from them. Alabama knows that. I'm not telling you they ever thumb their nose at someone. I'm just saying when you're watching those games, even when you were watching Alabama-Florida last week, Florida's within one possession late. So they're there. They're in the game the whole time. Did you ever feel like Alabama was going to lose? You didn't because you never felt like Florida was going to stop them. And even if Notre Dame gets a couple of more stops, they've got the entire opposite problem. They don't have the ability to trade points every time. And it's kind of like this, this funnel that I'm looking at right here that I used to cut my protein powder with, sometimes pouring it into a turkey shake, by the way. It's at the very base of the funnel. It's very compact, obviously. And about a millimeter or two up, it's still very compact. But then all of a sudden, as a funnel does, it rapidly fans out. And that's kind of what Alabama does. It rapidly fans out when it comes to margin of victory against you. If you can trade points with them, so if you're at the base of the funnel, in other words, and you have the ability to trade points, you can beat them. Like Clemson could beat them. Ohio State theoretically could beat them. They wouldn't be favored, but they could beat them. Florida had a shot to hang with them because Florida could trade points. I'd be really interested, and I don't know what it would look like, but I'd be interested to see North Carolina play them. Like Ole Miss played them close. Maybe North Carolina could play them close. These are teams that have the ability to trade points. But just like the bottom inch or so of that funnel is very compact, very rapidly it spreads out. And that's what the margin potentially of victory for Alabama does against teams like Notre Dame when they don't have the offensive firepower. So Bud's talking about it in this piece. And again, it's on 247sports.com. And I would encourage you to go read it. And what he's doing is he's essentially taking comparative numbers and he is taking the point spread for Alabama-Notre Dame, and then he's taking prior point spreads like Clemson-Notre Dame, or theoretically, what would Ohio State be against Notre Dame? And what those numbers say is, theoretically, again, if everything's just equal, if Alabama's favored by 20 over Notre Dame, then Alabama should be favored by 10 or 11 over Clemson, right? Well, that's not right. Mathematically, it's right if you're believing everything's equal, but it's not. Because here's what the odds makers are going to tell you. If Alabama and Clemson both win Saturday or Friday, they will play in a national championship game and Alabama will be favored, but it will not be by double digits. And in fact, it will probably not be by over a touchdown. They'll be favored, but it'll be closer. And so you'll look at the relative data and you'll say, wait a second, if Alabama was favored by this over Notre Dame and Clemson was favored by this over Notre Dame, like shouldn't be, shouldn't Alabama then be favored by this number over Clemson? No, because Clemson has something in the eyes of an odds maker and you and I that Notre Dame doesn't have. And that is answerability. That is point trading potential. And so we're going the opposite way in the funnel. We're going from the top now down to the bottom. And once you get from two inches high in the funnel to one inch high in the funnel, there's a huge difference. It goes from being really spread out to really compact. And that's the margin potential. In an Alabama Clemson matchup, the margin potential is really tight. Clemson can beat them. No one's really looking at Notre Dame thinking they have a shot to beat Alabama because no one thinks they can answer Alabama. They think they can give a nice, solid fist-in-the-air effort. They think they can do that. But folks think that Clemson could actually upset Alabama. They don't think Notre Dame can upset them. And I got to be honest with you, I agree with that mentality. All right, we got some games to preview here. Let's wrap it up with this. Let's start with the Peach Bowl, Cincinnati at Georgia. I say at Georgia intentionally because this thing's being played in Atlanta. Georgia favored by seven. This is the first kickoff on New Year's Day. It's Friday. It's noon Eastern time. 
This one, a lot of people are looking forward to for a lot of different reasons. Cincinnati, it's the usual disrespect slash Super Bowl mentality. So the question always becomes, okay, well, how up is the big Power 5 team going to be? It always sounds like an excuse, but yet it's just reality. Uh, Georgia did not set out in the preseason to play in the Peach Bowl. They didn't. But yet they're there. And it's in their backyard. So you better show up. Because there are a lot of places you can look bad at. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia, as the University of Georgia, not one of them. That's not where you want to be. So you always watch for the physicality. Cincinnati is known for defense. It's the hallmark of their identity. They have come on offensively, and their defense gave them time to do that this year. But defensively, I'm very interested to see just physically how they match up with Georgia. Because I remember earlier in the year, and I'm not comparing these teams at all, certainly not, but I remember early in the year there were two instances where Tennessee and Auburn played Georgia. And the thought was, okay, physically they can match up. And neither time did the other side physically match up. Georgia's offensive line and Georgia's overall offensive physicality wore those teams down. Now, Cincinnati is a different caliber team this year than Auburn and Tennessee were. But it still remains to be seen whether the overall physicality, the lean-on ability, in other words, for Georgia, is there. The opposite side of things, though, is to me where it gets really interesting. Cincinnati, defensively. They got 15 interceptions this year. They've been really good at taking the ball away. And so you would think to yourself, all right, Georgia still figuring some things out offensively. JT Daniels is in at quarterback. He's played a few games, but yet you got a little bit of off time between the last time they've played and a bowl game. Like maybe there's some rust there. So maybe the hinges are a little squeaky and the passing game's not exactly crisp and Cincinnati benefits from a few takeaways and that's how they end up winning this game. That could happen. I actually think, there is an equal to or greater chance that the opposite happens. I think Desmond Ritter and that Cincinnati offense, they know they're going to have to push the ball. They know they're going to have to score a little bit more and maybe more pressure on that offense than there normally is. I think the Georgia secondary is what's going to be the difference here. Getting some key pieces back, maybe more pieces than we imagined. Getting back for this game, I actually think it's the Georgia secondary and the increase in overall speed and physicality in their secondary relative to what Cincinnati's seen all year. I think that's going to be the difference. Our model likes Georgia to win, and it likes Georgia by about six and a half points. I'm going to go a little bit past the number. So I'm going to take Georgia to win, and I'm going to take Georgia to cover. Next up, let's go the next day. It's actually the Fiesta Bowl, but it's January 2nd. It's Iowa State against Oregon. The Cyclones favored by four and a half. This is a game that kicks off, I believe, in the early afternoon hours. And there's no reason for me not to know that, so I'm pulling it up right now. Yeah, that game is set for 4 p.m., so a little bit later than early afternoon. 4 p.m. Eastern time. It's Oregon, Iowa State. So I want you to think about this for a second. Iowa State favored by four and a half. I actually really like Iowa State in this game. Now, I really like Iowa State, period. You understand the bias implied here. However, think if even if I were neutral, I'd probably take Iowa State here. I feel like this four and a half number should be about seven. But here's what I think happened. What I think happened is if we were to rewind two weeks ago, Iowa State was building. They were rolling. They were surging. They were playing their best football. Conversely, Oregon was falling. And they were not even in line to play in the Pac-12 title game. But then something happened in the West Coast where Washington couldn't play. And then Oregon gets elevated there. And then they're a beneficiary of turnover battle. And they win the Pac-12 championship game. Meanwhile, Iowa State plays a turnover-fueled game of their own. They're on the wrong side of it. And they lose to Oklahoma. And as a result, I think we have a combination of Iowa State falling and Oregon rising. And they meet at this four-and-a-half-point number. I actually like Iowa State to win the game, 
and I like them to cover and win the game for a couple of reasons here. Number one, just as we loved Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game because of the misread in the point spread when it came to turnovers, you know, USC had been plus all year, Oregon had been minus all year, and we just thought it was going to turn in that game, and it did. I think a lot of this point spread is based on the same thing. There were some egregious turnover mistakes made at the hands of Iowa State against Oklahoma, and yet Oklahoma still only won the game by six. I think there were minus three turnovers, Iowa State, and they still lost by six. Uh, That's not normal. If you're minus three turnovers in a championship game, you normally lose by double digits. And secondly, Oregon ended up doing the same thing inversely against USC. Well, I say all that to say this. I think the likelihood is the more typical versions of these teams show up in this game. Iowa State, probably a little more prone to end up on the plus side of that turnover margin, understanding it's random in any given game. But the real reason I like Iowa State is for the same reason I loved Oregon against USC. Oregon has struggled all year long against teams that can run the ball. Hadn't been a long year, but even teams that they've been favored against and they've won the game against have given them fits when they're just able to run the ball. This is the best running back. This is the best running game they will have faced all year. Brees Hall, Iowa State, that's what they do. And you got a quarterback you have to respect enough in Purdy that you can't just sell out to stop the run. I think they'll be able to consistently move the chains all afternoon. I think they'll probably have a significant disparity in number of plays run versus what Oregon's able to run. And overall, I think they're the better team this year. So I'm going to take the better team, I think, to win the game in Iowa State. I am also going to lay the four and a half points. I think that they're going to win and cover. And lastly, let's talk about the Orange Bowl here. This one, um, probably outside of the playoffs, I'm looking forward to the most. And it's North Carolina Taking on Texas A&M, Aggies favored by seven. It's Saturday night, so it's January 2nd. Saturday night, 8 o'clock Eastern time kick. So it's it's basically the last of the really big games before the national championship game is played. And so let me, let me just talk it through with you right quick. We know about the opt-outs. There are a number of opt-outs for North Carolina. Uh, that's been well-documented. Also well-documented was the fact that they ran for like half a mile on Miami the last time you saw them. I mean, the numbers were staggering. I don't ever think Michael Carter had 24 carries for 308 yards just by himself. And then Williams, Javante Williams carried it 23 times for 236 yards. So both of those guys, they averaged 12.8 and 10.3 yards per carry respectively. I, that's insanity. You Some teams can't run that well against air. And yet North Carolina did it against the living, breathing, 11-bodied defensive football team in Miami. I don't think that's going to be the case against Texas A&M. So here's the problem. That kind of stuff, it almost reaches a break point where you throw it out. Like you, For your future predictability purposes, you should not view that game as a game where North Carolina ran for over 500 yards. What you should do is you should have a cutoff point where they, let's just say they ran for 300 yards which is a dominant rushing performance. But after that, cut off the other yards because what it does is it skews your models in the future because you were basically running against a a dead body. I mean, there was no resistance. And so you're never going to face that. You're not going to face that against Texas A&M. So you can get really warped in your expectation if you don't understand how to calibrate your model. I don't think they're going to have, obviously, nearly that much success running against Texas A&M. But if they don't, what's their backup? What, What if all of a sudden... Early on, they cannot find traction in the run game. And I, what I think they'll do, because I don't I don't believe that Mac Brown is foolish enough to think he can just run right down the throat of Texas A&M. They don't have to, though. A lot of the runs will be either quick screens or perimeter, speed sweep, stuff like that. They'll find a way to manufacture something in the run game. I don't think that physicality is going to be nearly in the edge of North Carolina to the degree that it needs to be to win this. 
And I also think Texas A&M is not in that classical letdown spot of a team that expected or wanted to make the playoff, but then didn't. I don't think that's the case here. There's a lot of, there are tiers of motivation and just reading the pulse, getting the sense of Texas A&M, I think there is plenty of motivation here because I think they've got a lot to build towards. And I think a lot of folks in that program feel that. I don't think at all you're going to see any kind of mailed in performance here. So I like the Aggies to win, and I actually like the Aggies to cover. And I know I just took three favorites in bowl season, and that's historically dangerous. I got to go with what the model tells me. So give me the Aggies to win, and give me the Aggies to cover. Really good show tonight. Really appreciate you guys tuning in. Again, we hope to be back to normal. This is our last Late Kick Live-ish of this year, actually, I guess, Colin. So the next time that we do a show will be Sunday night. Fingers crossed we'll be back in the studio and we'll obviously have a lot of reaction. Now, also, we'll probably have some reaction videos to the playoff games before that show. So Saturday, you'll want to be checking out the channel because I'll probably have some reaction content then, too. We won't wait until Sunday night to cover those games for the first time. So until then, for Director Colin, for Producer Jordan on the podcast side of things, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for listening and supporting the show all year. You guys have been great and can't wait for 2021. Can't wait for the playoffs this week either. Until then, take care, enjoy the games, and God bless. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found.